the Toyota Save Mart 350 is underway. Kevin Harvick already stretching it out to about two, three car lengths over Martin Truex Jr. Harvick hit it, Truex stayed out. A perfect strategy on a perfect race day here at Sonoma. Martin Truex Jr. and his crew chief Cole Byrne have outboxed the field and it's going to result in a runaway victory. Hey, yeah, Martin Truex Jr. as he comes across the strike. For the second time, he'll taste the wine in Victory Lane here in Northern California. Martin Truex Jr. won a championship with his dominance on mile-and-a-half tracks last year. This year, Truex has won on a two-mile track, a two-and-a-half-mile track, and a road course after a win at Sonoma on Sunday. Welcome to NASCAR America, everybody, presented by Mobile One. Carol Lamano, our Hall of Famer Dale Jarrett, and our crew chief and NBC race analyst Steve Letarte is here as well. Where do you think Martin Truex Jr. is right now in the conversation of title contenders? We know he's been at the top, but where is he now? in the top group. Oh, you have to put him right there with him. I mean, right now, it's Kevin Harvick, Kyle Busch, and Martin Truex, and I would toss them up in the air and take any one of them at Homestead uh, in a race heads up right now. So uh, Truex hasn't won on that mile and a half, as you said, but that's coming very, very soon, I believe. So uh, really good team whenever you see that they can win on any type of racetrack. Steve, such an unusual call. I'm sure that just made you so happy being <laughs> the crew chief that you are. All week long, the question was one stop or two in the final segment, and there it came where the crew chiefs weren't even sure what they were going to do. I love the little cat and mouse game, and in the end, Cole Pern with a pretty gutsy call staying on the racetrack for those eight laps, proving that he's willing to take the gamble, because it's a gamble. The yellow comes out anytime after that final pit stop of Kevin Harvick's. He's going to have a big advantage, but the yellow did not come out, and Martin Truex Jr. proved once again while he's so consistent at the variety of tracks, as you mentioned. So you may recall that Truex has actually now won the last two road courses. He won at Watkins Glen last summer. And let's take a look back at the call and how the 78 team really got it done at Sonoma. We'll start with taking a look at one of the most beautiful sprawling landscapes in all of the sport. And two laps left in stage one here. The leaders, Kevin Harvick, Martin Truex Jr., and Clint Boyer all pit. And this set up a moment for A.J. Allmendinger. DJ. Yeah, A.J. was solidly in the top five, had done a great job. And he knows coming into this race, this is his opportunity to get that victory to put him in the playoff. And he wins his first stage. But things would certainly go a little bit wrong for him here. So difficult as a driver shifting gears at this place. He went from second to first. Let's hear what that sounds like. Seems something that's kind of rather simple, but it blows the engine up because over revving the engine takes away any chance for a victory. Never a good sound, a heartbreaking sound in wine country for Almendinger. And two laps left here in stage two, Kevin Harvick, Martin Truex, Clint Boyer, all pitting again. Steve Denny Hamlin with the opportunity this time. Yeah, second stage, same idea. The leaders come to pit road. Denny Hamlin stays on the racetrack, gets his second stage win of 2018. But it was all about track position. That's why the leaders pitted before the end of stage two. And that's why Kevin Harvick pits here with 38 to go. He thinks this is the strategy the 78 will be on. The 78 kind of pulls a fast one, stays on the racetrack, runs eight more laps, eight very fast laps, comes in, 
gets fresh tires later than Kevin Harvick that gives him advantage when he rejoins the racetrack and easily passes Kevin here with 20 to go. Yep, 20 to go. Truex passing Harvick for the lead, and that was really the moment of this whole entire thing. You know, it's great as a driver. You've got the better tires. You've got the best strategy and one of the two best race cars in the race. I like uh, Martin Truex's chances in, in that situation, and he went on to keep it on track and go to victory lane. Just a cold uh, pern sly smile there right after the win. Big hugs in victory lane all around. That included Rodney Childers congratulating the whole entire team. It would be the 78 team's third win of the season. Victory was also Truex's third win on a road course. That trails Kyle Busch's four wins for the most by an active driver. Kevin Harvick was the runner-up for the second straight race, finishing in the top two in eight of 16 races this season. Clint Boyer, Chase Elliott, Kyle Busch rounding out the top five. A couple other notables here that we want to mention, and we got to mention our guy Parker Kligerman, finishing 23rd yesterday. Great job. You know, take a look at some of these names, DJ, that finished below him. You got Ryan Newman, William Byron, Paul Menard, Bubba Wallace, Blaney, McMurray, Almondinger all had equipment issues. Um, but still a great finish for our guy, Parker Kligerman. The day, though, belonging to the 78 team. A little trickery and a great performance by the pit crew. We're in California. They went to acting school this week. <laughs> they were in L.A. for a couple days on the off weekend. <laughs> Learning how to do screenplays and such. Uh, I called him out the last second. As far as he knew, we were pitting. You know, we're... Uh... I'd like to say that we're smart enough to use codes, but we're not, and we probably would screw it up. It's a recipe for disaster, you know, because we've seen it before. Guys have codes, and then they call it out, and the guy's like, oh, what the hell? I thought it, I thought it was the other way, and they screw up. So we don't do that. We just we do what we do, and, uh, you know, we tell each other what's going on, and we play off that. But today it was obviously a little bit different, but they had some insight that I didn't know about. You know, caution could have came out, and we would have been, you know, snookered the other way. So it's uh, – yeah, we got a good relationship and we get along really well. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, when it comes to these races, calling strategy, you just got to make the best call you can at the time. And, and that's what we did. Cole and I have a great relationship. Um, I never question him when he's calling races and when he has, uh, you know, things going on when he's talking to me in the car. It's just, okay, yes, yes, or it's yes or no answers for me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he told me to pit and I was like, okay, I'm going to pit. And then he said, don't pit. So I'm like, fine, I'm just going to stay out. Beyond the six drivers that have virtually locked themselves into the playoffs with wins, there wasn't much <coughs> shuffling in the playoff standings after Sonoma. Brad Keselowski remaining best on points in seventh. Alex Bowman still on the bubble with a 17-point cushion over Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Steve, take us inside this decision because as a crew chief, I know you're not feeling well. Hopefully you can. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to cough in everyone's ear. Sorry. Um, I'll go to DJ if you have trouble. But, um, no, go ahead. As, as a crew chief, you were so prepared. Take us inside this move. How much of executing something that is seemingly so dangerous or yeah. risky comes before the race even happens? Well, I like what they said right there, and they kept it simple. But we're not going to use code words. We're going to use timing on the racetrack. So if you go back and look, you know, Kevin Harvick is leading the race, which means he comes to pit road first. He has to make a decision. Everyone understood that basically between 38 and 30 to go, there was a window. You're either going to pit early, which is what Kevin Harvick did, which means you're going to have to probably come again for fuel. Cole Pern, knowing that, all the way down through the S's, knowing that everyone is scanning him, come on in, buddy, we're going to pit, we're going to pit, we're going to pit, calls it off the last minute. You can make a change, your driver can hear you, but the other team, especially the team in front of you, doesn't have a time to react. It was masterfully accomplished by the 78 of Cole Pern. I think even Rodney Childers had his tip his hat saying, you know what, you got me. Because if you look back a year ago, it was basically the reversal. 
The four of Kevin Harvick only pitted once. He pitted with about 30 to go and ran the last stint of that race on old tires. And everyone said, well, if a yellow would have came out, he would have lost. A yellow didn't come out last year. A yellow did not come out again this year. So a gutsy call by the 78 to pit when he did. Because as Cole even said in his, in his uh, press conference, one mistimed yellow DJ and those old tires are really going to play havoc for the 78. Yeah, and two wins already helped you make that call and, and that decision to do that in trying to get another win uh, and, and just get those bonus points that you can add up that can carry on through the playoffs. So uh, I love what they did, uh, to, did something different, uh, take a chance. They knew that basically they had to outrun and outdo the four car. That was really their, their chief rival for the entire day, and, and I like the idea of, of the way that they went about it. But getting wins earlier in the year helps you be able to make decisions and make calls like this and the thing that I really like is you heard Martin Truex say there that he's behind his crew chief at whatever calls he wants to make he's going to drive the car hard as he possibly can he does a great job with that and that's what makes a really good relationship it's such a great example of the trust that they have yes. he just blindly follows whatever Colburn yep. asked him to do Steve GJ does bring up a great point I mean this thing came down to two cars so what about how Rodney Childers responded when Colburn made such a savvy move you know I, I almost, I hate to say I was wishing a yellow would come out, but I wish a yellow would have came out just to pay off the guts that Rodney Childers had because basically he had second place all sewn up. It was no doubt he was going to run second to the 78. But just a handful of laps after the 78 passes him, Rodney Childers calls his car back on the pit road, puts four fresh tires on that car, knowing it's his only chance to win the race, but knowing he only has to really race against one car. What you say, Carolyn, is absolutely right. It truly was a field of 30-something race cars, but two heavyweights were the only two in the field. Clint Boyer had a decent car, never quite showed where he could run with those two. It really came down to the 78 and the four. So I think that Rodney Childers, you know, he knew he got beat on the strategy, but he didn't give up. He kept fighting, which I think says a lot about that race team. He just didn't hang his head, DJ, and say, you know what, we're going to run second. He calls him back in for a gutsy pit stop. He just needed a yellow for that strategy to work. Yeah, Steve, I sat up on the end of the sofa whenever Rodney Childress called <laughs> Kevin Harvick back in there. I said, oh, okay, so now we've got 30 laps left or a little bit less than that, uh, obviously, and said, okay, now these guys can't stay on this on the pavement through that long a time. Somebody has to run off, and a caution is going to make this very, very interesting to see exactly what happens. But – the 78 was the fortunate ones that the caution didn't come out. Steve, I just wonder how good it feels as a crew chief when you hear your driver in a post-race press conference basically say, I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do. If it sounds crazy, I'm going to do it. How important is that for success moving forward? Well, I could tell any race team in the garage area, any driver in the garage area that doesn't have that feeling about his crew chief needs to call him on the phone and they need to go to dinner, go have a beer, go do something because that's what they're racing against. Cole Pern and Martin Trex Jr. have that. Kevin Harvick and Ronnie Childress has that. All of the front-running teams, every car that goes up front that dominates this year, you have to have that belief. I believe Adam Stevens and Kyle Busch, even as fired up as Kyle Busch gets inside the race car at times, I never doubt he's going to do whatever Adam Stevens tells him to do. And that is what it takes to run up front. There's not enough time when you're in these races to have explanations. You heard what Martin Truex had to say. It's yes or no. I give a direct answer, and I'm off the radio back to driving the race car. He says, pit, I'm going to pit. He says, we're not pitting. I just stay on the racetrack. That blind belief in that person on top of the crew chief, or on top of the pit box, that is what must happen for a team to go win a championship. I was pitted next to it. I saw Jimmy Johnson believe everything Chad Knauss had to tell him, and you saw how it worked for seven championships. And I just think this is another example of two guys that take it to the, to the most 
highest level week in and week out. Let's get back to A.J. Allmendinger for just a minute if we can. He's got a great start to the race. He wins stage one. He's known as a road course ringer. And then early in stage two, he makes this huge mistake, misses a shift on lap 44. He sustained that engine failure. And despite his reputation of being so talented on these road courses, he's now finished 35th or worse in four of his last five Sonoma starts. I haven't missed a shift on a road course in 10 years. Uh, just me. I, I don't, I, I wasn't, I was so, trying to be so patient, so smooth with it. Just, it was unexpected. Um, it's on me. It's, I let everybody down here. Um, just can't thank Kroger and Clickless enough and, and my guys. The car was good. I don't know if it was race winning. We kept needing to work on the long run, but uh, just on me. I don't, I don't know what else to say. I just let everybody down. So Almendinger taking full responsibility, Steve. I'm just I'm confused about the strategy here going for stage wins versus going for wins because it would seem like the way that A.J. Almendinger was tasked to do this race, it would be go for the win, right? I mean, Yeah, Caroline, I was actually uh, surprised as well when he decided to stay on the racetrack to win the stage. I wonder if they didn't get caught a little off guard thinking they weren't sure all the leaders were going to pit, and then when everyone in front of them pitted, they decided to go for the win. I like the idea of pinning with the leaders, but it's always easier to say after it happens. Um, I know that, you know, sometimes momentum can be as good as anything, maybe just running up front. I also question, you know, this 47 team, unfortunately, hasn't been put in that position a lot of times. They haven't run inside the top eight or ten, and it's a much different race. I know that um, when we consistently ran up front and then we would have an off day, I struggled to remind myself to be efficient, to try to get a wave around or a lucky dog or vice versa. If you're used to running towards you know, the tail end of the lead lap and you get towards the front, the, the strategies vary quite a bit. And I just think the 47 got caught a little off guard, but it was only stage one. I think he did have time to recover. I felt so awful for AJ because you could just hear the disappointment. I applaud what he had to say and there's nothing more he could have said other than the truth, which was he made a unfortunate mistake at a terrible time, DJ. Mm. Yeah, the, the call surprised me, too, uh, because they, this was their opportunity, one of two that you look at. Although A.J. does a great job at Daytona and, and so, uh, Bristol and a few other racetracks, but I, I think there's a couple of things to look at here. Yeah, I think they got called off guard a little bit, and it was stage one, so it, it wasn't something they couldn't overcome with a good race car and doing some things a little bit differently from that point on. But another thing that you might have to look at, just as consideration, you know, th these teams... They, they work hard to get this sponsorship, and their owners does a great job of getting that there. But this was a chance for them to be on TV, get their sponsors some, some real uh, visible uh, coverage right there. And so that might be something to look at there, too. So there's a lot of things that, that come into play besides just doing what everybody else is doing uh, at that uh, particular time. So you don't know what all went into it. I just hate that AJ made that mistake. It's so easy to do. It's just so easy in, in making that shift. You're trying hard and sometimes when you're trying to be easy is when you make that mistake instead of going on and punishing the transmission a little yeah, bit. Yeah, as a Hall of Fame driver, I'm sure you know more than most just what that feels Terrible like. Terrible feeling. I've done take, it. Oh, yeah, nothing worse. Ownership over it. But it yes. is a business, like you said, right. and maybe those decisions came into play. Uh, while Truex and Harvick were racing for a win at Sonoma, there were other elite drivers looking to gobble up as many points as possible. This is a big story from the weekend. We're going to break down their days and what points could be moving forward when NASCAR America returns. Stay with us. NASCAR America is brought to you by Mobile One Annual Protection. Proven protection for 20,000 miles.
everybody. A trip to the movies is my go-to cure for a case of the Mondays. Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard currently starring in the movie event of the summer. You can see Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom now in theaters. If you're feeling like you might want to do that tonight or sometime this week, go for it. Meantime, with Martin Truex Jr. winning his third race of the year, we still have only six different winners this season, which is the fewest through 16 races since 1978 when five Hall of Famers were the only race winners. Look at the numbers. As of right now, you've got 10 drivers who would be into the playoffs on points with only 10 races left in the regular season. If you remember to last year, 13 drivers got into the playoffs with a win, just three on points. Chase Elliott was among those who had a good points day yesterday. Yeah, it was a lot more fun this trip out here than uh, than it has been the first two times. So it made made a lot of gains personally. I think you know for me here at this track, it's been uh, one of my worst. Uh, we kind of had to pick our battles today. We, we elected to get some stage points and um, you know set us back a little for that that last stage. But I don't think we had the pace that uh, the leaders had. So Alan did a great job calling a good race and, and got a, uh, a a good finish for me here. And uh, looking forward to the next road race. So Chase Elliott encouraged by the way that he ran at Sonoma over the weekend. How has the number of drivers with wins, which is just such a small pool, like we just showed you guys at home, affected the winless, legitimate playoff contenders who are now looking at this thing going, this might be about points. <laughs> definitely. Yes, no, no fact, no might be to <laughs> it. It's definitely going to be a lot of people <laughs> getting in on points. And, and Chase Elliott and Alan Gustafson, they did an outstanding job yesterday in, in managing this. And stage racing, it affected the way the outcome of the race happened as far as the winner and who finished second. But it also gave Chase Elliott an opportunity to get stage points and get a good finish in the race. So they put all of that together. And you can see 49 points in a day is a really good day. And this gave Chase a, a much better cushion uh, as he sits there and trying to point his way into the playoffs. What it also does, is it opens things up a little bit more to where when they get to places that they normally run well, and I'm sure they're going to get this Chevrolet running better on the ovals very soon, but it gives them a chance not to be as conservative whenever they get to some of these places that they know, like a Michigan and, and Pocono where uh, Chase does a really good job to, to go for wins instead of just having to back off now. So uh, that was a really good job of him driving the car all day and the, the strategy that they put into place that got him a very good points day. Yeah, Steve, he's certainly not the only driver that we saw get really aggressive for these stage points. Well, yeah, we mentioned Denny Hamlin, who stayed out during that one stage to win the stage, which was a little surprising because he's decent in points. But then even Chase Elliott's teammate, Alex Bowman, you know, when you look at those standings, he's the guy basically on the cut line. Him and Ricky Stenhouse are currently racing for 16th in points. So the points are going to matter. And with Daytona coming in only a couple weeks, it only takes one more, I call it, surprise winner or a winner outside the top 16 that will move that cut line. So Alex Bowman who did a decent job finishing in the top 10, but gaining points in the stages at Sonoma, kind of, I won't say securing those points, but at least helping him sleep a little bit better at night. He can't guarantee that because you see right here, you know, before Sonoma, only plus four, after plus 17. That's great. That's plus 17. But if someone outside the top 16 wins a race, he's already out of the points. So he can't just battle for 16th. He has to battle for those points all summer long to try to make sure he makes the playoffs. 
You said you think that Chase Elliott and the guys in that organization are going to maybe start to find it at some of these other tracks. I think about Jimmy Johnson and how well he's run at times and how poorly he's run at times and just wonder what their strategy is, what, what they're thinking right now. I think that was very evident yesterday. He was another driver. He and Chad Kanauskat thinks they saw that they didn't have the car to challenge those guys that were up front to, to try to get another win on a road course. So they elected along the same lines, a strategy of getting stage points and then ending up not quite in the top 10, but but a decent enough day to, to gather some points. So, you know, it's hard to believe that we're talking about this seven-time champion just thinking about points right now because normally you would say, oh, they're going to gather a win somewhere. They haven't even been close to that at, at this point in time. So you can see a good solid points day for him. Gave him a little bit more cushion. Uh, but... You know, they still got some work to do, and they understand that uh, as far as the ovals go. But uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of this as we get into these next 10 races and uh, teams and drivers having to get in on that. Because just as, as Steve was pointing out, we've got a couple of wild card races left still, uh, and anybody can win anywhere. So as soon as somebody from the outside, Stenhouse at Daytona or something like that, then that moves that line up and makes things even more difficult. Yeah, Steve, it's not just these big-name seven-time champions. There are so many drivers here who are thinking about points cushions, thinking about the bubbles. Eric Jones comes to mind. Yep. He did not do particularly well picking up stage points, but he had a seventh-place finish in the race, and that really padded his cushion without stage points. Well, you know, Carolyn, something that happens over the course of the year is February rolls around, and you get your team together, and you say, we're going to Daytona. It's going to be a great year. We need to win a couple races. And then you battle through the preseason, and you battle through the 600, and by the time you head west... You kind of know what you have. There's no magic switch you're going to flip that you're going to all of a sudden try to dominate and beat Kevin Harvick, Martin Truex Jr., Clint Boyer, the teams that are winning all the time, the 18 of Kyle Busch. So I don't think it's by surprise that we've mentioned three of the four Hendrick cards and points racing. You mentioned Eric Jones and points racing. I mean, you look at the names, Hamlin, Larson, Almirola, Blaney, Johnson. These are big names just inside the top 16 where if they have a tough spell, it could be mechanical, it could be anything, they could find themselves on the outside looking in. So I actually think it's quite telling that an organization like Hedger Motorsports, and perhaps a little bit dangerous to the rest of the field, that DJ, they know what they're racing with for equipment, right? They are calling the races trying to gain points, not calling the races trying to win the race. You heard Chase Elliott say it. We took a strategy to gain points because we didn't think we could run for the, with the leaders, while that isn't your goal going into every race, when you're comfortable enough to go to that strategy during the race, that is a good place to be comfort-wise because that may be your best bet and only bet to make the playoffs. Yeah, as we look at this, you look at that list, you know, those 20-somethings that we touted, who's going to be the one stepping up winning these races? Well, they're not winning races right now, but they're all in a big battle to make the playoffs <laughs> back there. So they got a different kind of pressure on them right now. Yeah. Um, you want to go back to that race-winning call by Cole Pern, because I think the people at home <laughs> might want to hear a little bit more about it. The call was fake, payoff very real. When we come back, we are going to listen in on the scanners. Let's hear exactly how that team played their clever trick. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Cole Pern guided Martin Truex Jr. to last year's Monster Energy Series title, and on Sunday, he proved himself again as one of NASCAR's top crew chiefs without he snookered the competition at Sonoma. Let's listen to how that actually unfolded. Stay out here, Mark. Stay out. Okay, this time. This time. Stay out one more. Stay out. Stay out. All right, next time, bye. Next time, bye. Are you going to pit this time? Headed to 10. Didn't hear you. All right. 
All the way around. First gear to line over there. Three, two, one. First gear, don't speed. All right, stay out, Mark. Stay out, stay out. Gotta go about nine more, Mark. The past two laps, the 78 guys were up on the wall. They were ready to pit. Cole Pern kept saying, pit next time, pit next time. Finally, he said, stay out as the four car pitted. These guys are off the wall now. I believe they just baited the four car into pitting when they wanted the four car to pit. Save your tires. Need to run any easier than that? Think or what do you think? If we need to run easier, let me know. 10-4. Basically, 78 takes us out. They decided to run seven or eight more laps. So, I don't know. Kind of screwed us here a little bit, but we'll make the best out of it. <laughs> you can't help but just kind of chuckle when you hear Rodney say that, Steve. I mean, I can't imagine what that feels like as a crew chief. You know you just got had, basically. You did. You basically just looked at the chessboard, and you were two moves away from checkmate, and there's nothing you can do about it. And basically, you heard Rodney that, that he was scanning the 78, and it was more than just one lap. Cole Pern played it well. The pit crew played it well. They were on pit wall. I bet they didn't even know, right? The best way to fool your pit crew is fool everyone. Tell everyone you're going to come to pit road, even your own driver, Martin Truex Jr. And it really came down to this. If you pit with 38, 39 laps to go, you're going to have to come get one more pit stop, one more splash of gas or, or some tires. And that was the question. Who was going to do what? We've seen it play out different over the past few years. So that was the question mark, and it was really between these two. And the 78 of Cole Pern used the advantage of being second. Rarely will we say the advantage of being second perfectly, which is, you know what? I'm going to do all the talking, make the four make a decision, and as soon as he commits, we're going to jump off the lifeboat, back onto the racetrack, stay on the racetrack. You heard Rodney Childers' disappointment. What I like about Rodney, though, is after a four or five laps, he kind of got his thoughts together. He saw the 78 come to pit road. He, it played out like he thought. And like we mentioned earlier in the show, he then came to pit road very early to give himself a chance. It didn't work out, but he stayed in the game and kept swinging all the way to the checkered flag. Because we spent a lot of time on this in the call and it was a moment of the race, yeah. consider for a moment at home the arc of Martin Truex Jr.'s career. We talked a lot about it when he was in the process of winning the championship last year. But consider essentially... 10 seasons with only two wins up there at the top. And then you look at his last 111 starts, 16 wins. That is an incredible turnaround. And, DJ, I know that you know something about this because you've really experienced something similar. <laughs> I mean, I hate to point it out, but your first 224 starts, you had two wins, and then the next 273, 29 you mentioned right before the last commercial break about the young drivers and the pressure that's placed on a driver like Chase Elliott, but then you have a, a driver like Martin Truex Jr. Mm -hmm. and you and other drivers over the course of the history of the sport who have come into their own as a veteran, and I think we're seeing that from Martin Truex Jr. Yeah, we certainly are, and, and you know, I, I appreciate the the marketing campaign that was done for the young drivers coming in, and they're the, you know, they are the future, but experience still means a lot in this sport. And I think Martin Truex, experience along with finding yourself in the right position. And that's what you always try to do. I don't care if you're a quarterback in the NFL, if you're LeBron James trying to find, decide where you're going next, uh, what team you're going to. But Martin Truex has found the team that, that is right for him. And when you put all of that mixture together, then good things start to happen. It's not that he's become that much better of a race driver now. He's certainly better in, in ways that he understands what it takes, how much he can push his car, and probably probably wins races now that he couldn't have maybe uh, four or five years ago. Uh, the equipment has something to do with that, but that experience speaks for a lot. And that's why we're seeing Kevin Harvick and, and Martin Truex Jr. And even Kyle Busch, he has a lot. He's very experienced. He's very young still, but I think he's one of the few that 
in his early 20s that was capable of winning, and I'm speaking of Kyle Busch there, that was able to, to live up to all of that. But Martin Truex now, he, and he has, gosh, five, six, seven good years at least uh, ahead of him to do this. So it's really no telling. They keep this team and organization together uh, that he can win a lot more races. But you, you really appreciate somebody persevering through all of that because winning two and I don't know what mine was 200 and some and his was 300 and some, winning two races That's in that time it takes a lot to keep pushing on but it's what you love to do and you know that just that right situation is can be just around the corner and make things a lot better and that winning percentage goes up and it's a lot more fun then <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure and Steve you all always talk about relationships you talk about team chemistry it, it seems very clear that the 78 team loves to be doing what everybody else isn't doing they love that they've got their own thing going on and also an equipment being such a, a variable here fi when things finally come together it just it seems from the outside like it's magic yeah Carolyn what I learned in my career very quickly is you can never assume more wins are coming because the equipment can rotate you can go from having fast cars to slow cars because someone else made a big game but I like Martin Truex Jr. in the 78 team more for what they do on social media what they do in their interviews what they are like as far as people go you know Something about Martin Trex Jr., you know, the son of a fisherman from New Jersey, the guy's a blue-collar guy, worked his way up through the sport. Cole Pern, a very quiet guy, doesn't say a whole lot. This team is based out in Colorado. There's something about them that seems like they should just be fan favorites. I don't know what kind of fan base they have. I know they cheer loud when he wins, cheer loud when he's announced. But if I was a fan of NASCAR, I'd have a hard time not rooting for Cole Pern and Martin Truex Jr. just because of the way they go about winning. I mean, everyone likes a winner, but there's something about it when you go about it the way they just truly seem to love working together. And every time they win, I just look at Cole Pern's social media, right? They get the whole group together with a cold beer in their hand and they take a picture. Even now, after 16 wins in the last few years, they're still taking that picture. And I think that says a lot about a team that I really think they appreciate every single win. And I know everybody should, but as much as some of these teams are winning now, I think sometimes it's easy to take for granted. And I never feel like the 78 team does that. Yeah, it's a great story. And everybody yeah. in sports loves rooting for a great story, a great underdog. They certainly have provided that. Yeah, and, and now he's on a path to the Hall of Fame. You know, before that and before all of this started happening, you know, he was a solid race driver that, that could win anywhere. But now he's proven he can win literally anywhere. And that's the big difference. You didn't put that part up there. He has three road course wins. I didn't have any of those. So uh, he he's just shown that he can do everything you know I think if you ask him right now he would say probably winning another championship and winning a Daytona 500 is what's on his list to try to get things done but uh, he's on a fast pace here right now and can we make him the favorite you asked that earlier about the championship he certainly has to be one of them that's looking at that and when you get two championships that puts you in a whole nother category yeah it's a great point there's a big three right now there could be a big fourth Clint Boyer we don't know what's going to happen yeah. in these playoffs but it's certainly exciting to think about he had a great day uh, Ryan Blaney had a much tougher day over the weekend. Road course racing is always a workout, but things got pretty physical for Blaney on Sunday at Sonoma. We're going to break down the steering issues that really doomed his day next. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. So Sunday, 15-time NASCAR most popular driver Dale Earnhardt Jr. trading his helmet for a microphone. He's going to join us and join the NBCSN team for Monster Energy Cup Series racing from Chicagoland Speedway. We can't wait to have him Sunday, 2.30 Eastern on NBCSN. We are ready 
yes. to get our full coverage started. I know you're ready. I'm very excited. Uh, this coming weekend at Chicago, we've been waiting for it. Um, we're going to be rolling out something real special, the new Peacock Pit Box. Take a look at this. This is a great vantage point for our studio show. It's set up right along Pit Road, and this is where you're going to see DJ and Chris Devota and Kyle Betty during our pre- and post-race coverage. Um, and as you may have heard, Dale Earnhardt Jr. is just going to get right in there with Steve and Rick, and he's going to be on our show during the week. I mean, it's, it's going to be a fantastic time. And Steve, we were we were together when we revealed the Peacock Pit Box. I went down to Charlotte. I, I'm very excited to see how we're going to use this thing. Not to toot our own horn, but it's really versatile. You guys will have a great view of the track, and I know you can use it too, Steve, for whatever you would need. Well, yeah, I mean, the action happens on pit road, right? You need to be where the action is. We have a great view up above the track at the booth watching these races. But I think being that close to the garage during practice, being that close to pit road during qualifying, there's going to be so many great uses. You can be up top. You can be down behind. It's such a, just a versatile set. Uh, I know DJ is going to get a lot of reps on it in this pre-race show and post-race show. It's going to be a blast. And then Dale Jr. joining us in the booth. I can't wait, Carolyn, because he thinks driving a couple practices and a race is a full fun weekend of work. Well, I can't wait to have him up there in the booth for all of these practices. He's wound up. He's excited. He loves racing. And uh, it's going to be fun to share a booth with him and talk some racing. Yeah, it's going to be great because he has so much knowledge of the sport, but having a driver come that's just out of the car and has had as much success as, as Dale Jr. had, uh, it's just going to be uh, great for our NBC team. Yeah, no pressure on him, but we've been telling you guys <laughs> at home that he's coming for months, so finally he's here and we're excited to get going. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, so let's go back to Sonoma just for a minute if we can. Another very impressive day for Stuart Haas racing, all four drivers finishing in the top ten, the second time that's ever happened. They did it at Phoenix earlier this year on the opposite end of that spectrum very much a day to forget for team penske and the wood brothers the highest finisher among the four drivers brad kislavsky in 13th place joey logano 19th paul menard 26th and ryan blaney was 34th especially difficult day for blaney since he lost his power steering early in the final stage i said i have a power steering problem the smoke is from power steering fluid we believe there's no tire out that we can see so if it, it is quit smoking, which means it probably pushed all the fluid out, so you kind of got what you got here. I mean, I, what else do we do besides ride it out? I mean, if we go behind the wall, you're screwed either way. Yeah, you got to ride it out until he can't take it anymore. Hope for a caution, maybe something simple we can fix. Ryan, it would be hard to make any spots here, so if you want to finish it for the principle of it, you can, or you can park it. I ain't quitting now, so. Damn right. One of the toughest things I've ever seen, man. Sorry you had to do it. Describe for us, DJ, as a driver, <laughs> how difficult this was. With all due respect to Martin Truex and, and uh, everybody else that finished up front, they did a great job driving their cars, but Ryan Blaney gets the award for being the toughest man there yesterday. If this happens on an oval when that power steering goes out, the banking can help you, uh, and, and, and you can manage there. It's a tough afternoon to finish that, but it could have happened at a worse place. Uh, with so many turns here, you're still having to chip, do everything you can. And when you turn it so far, then it'll catch, and you can see him a couple of times go over and almost crash the car going at a reduced rate of speed. And for him to be able to do this, I mean, he's not a very big guy. Uh, I was very impressed physically that he was able to handle this throughout the day. As I said, couldn't happen at a worse spot. Uh, he was ready for some rest, rest after that, I'm, I'm sure. I'm just laughing because, Steve, my little sister lost power steering in her streetcar once. <laughs> and I drove that thing around, and I thought I was having a really tough day. And I cannot imagine <laughs> what he was going through, in all seriousness. Well, it was definitely a physical test, but more than anything, I like the mental fortitude. You know, they finished 34th. 
Uh, they weren't going to gain really any more points staying on the racetrack. They could have just as easily, with a few mechanical failures behind them, just called it a day and went to the garage. But for their sponsors, for their fans, for themselves, for their teammates, for their, the men and women at Penske that work at home, they, they battled it out to the finish. And I, uh, that says a lot. You know, sometimes we pick on some of these younger drivers and some of the questionable comments they may make or their actions on the racetrack. Well, this is a moment that a young driver, in my mind, did something remarkable that perhaps could be easily overlooked. He didn't. He stayed on the racetrack. It reminded me a lot of just the, the true grit that I think most race car drivers are built out of. So it was uh, not fun to watch, but fun to recap. I, hate, I would hate to have to ride along with him. It must have been a long day. Yeah, absolutely. Tough run for Team Penske and Wine Country, but they did have a much better outcome in Sunday's Verizon IndyCar Series race from Road America. For a recap of that, in case you missed it, here's Lee Diffie. Reigning Verizon IndyCar Series champion Joseph Newgarden got the weekend off to the best possible start by winning the pole position, getting the Verizon P1 award. He shared the front row with teammate Will Power, but look at the second silver car. Power had issues right from the start and was ailing. The Indy 500 champion was out of the race pretty much as soon as it began. There was some incredibly close racing at Road America. Alexander Rossi and Takuma Sato, and this did not end well for the Japanese driver who won the Indy 500 last year. Rossi was on a mission until mechanical issues for him. And he was heading for a top three spot, chasing down this man, the eventual winner, Joseph Newgarden, his third win of the season, his first ever at Road America, and puts himself back in the championship chase. Lee, thank you. Coming up, something to add to your summer reading list. Our resident crew chief, Steve Letart, is an author. He's going to tell us about his new book when we come back. Stay with us. You want drama? We've got it. Dale Earnhardt Jr. trying to get away. Jr. showing no problem whatsoever. He has the field in tow. There's a big record to bear. The 11th not clear. Second flag. You're in. And Dale Earnhardt Jr. has won the Daytona 500 for the second time in his career. Woo! The 2014 Daytona 500 was a crowning moment in the rebirth of Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s career, but it also meant the world to Steve, who played a very key role then as Jr.'s crew chief. And now Steve is taking you behind the scenes of some of the most important moments in his career atop the pit box in a new book called Leading the Way, as told to Nate Ryan. We're glad to have Nate Ryan with us here. Steve, I told you when you gave me this book that if I opened it up and I was going to be reading about fuel strategy, splitters, <laughs> downforce, that I was just going to close the book and put it away because honestly, I just don't have the appetite for that on the beach. But I was so pleasantly surprised after reading it to find that the whole entire thing is about relationships. What was the goal for you in, in creating this book? Well, it was just that, Carolyn. You know, when I look back, I've had such a, a fortunate career. I got to work with some great race car drivers, Dale Jr. being one of them, that uh, those four years with Dale were so special to me, so special to my career and to me personally, my friendship with him, my family, that I wanted to kind of retell those stories, retell kind of what happened behind the scenes. I was smart enough to know that I wasn't capable of writing it myself, so uh, I brought Nate in, and basically we just sat down for uh, uh, quite a length of time, and I told Nate all of these stories, and he was the guy that had to try to put those all together into this book, and I'm so happy with how it came out. It was great to tell the stories. It's about the behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, a little bit of leadership stuff, and more than anything, just a fun four years of racing. Nate, what was this process like for you? Because this is a, your first book, right? 
Right, yeah. I've never done anything like this before. I had a feeling it would go well, Carolyn, because when I covered Steve as a reporter, he was always a great quote. And what I tell everybody is he speaks in quotes. And so <laughs> when I did all these interviews with him and went through all the transcription and turned that into text, it, it wrote itself. I mean, it really did. He has just great detail. He had great recall of some real behind-the-scenes moments that really haven't been told before. And um, just a, a quick plug, one of those moments will be on NBCSports.com slash NASCAR tonight. There'll be an excerpt from the book about uh, the 2012 Michigan win, uh, which I think people will really enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, I told that story to Nate, and he was shocked. It was behind the scenes enough that he and the reporter yeah, hadn't heard We didn't it yet. know about it. Yeah. <laughs> I-, I learned a lot about you in this book, Steve, and your relationship with Junior, there's a lot there, but also your relationship with Jeff Gordon and how different they were. You say that you were really more of a mentor and that Dale Earnhardt Jr. got the best crew chiefing uh, years of your career because you were ready then. How different would you describe your relationships between Jeff Gordon, who said, you know, I, want, I need you to treat me like everybody else, and then finally when you had matured to, to find Junior when you both really needed a resurgence in your careers? Yeah, you know, Carol, I've never hidden from the fact that I really owe my career to Jeff Gordon. I wouldn't be sitting here talking today. I would have never been Dale Jr.'s crew chief if Jeff Gordon didn't give a 25-year-old kid a chance to be on top of his pit box. And I would love to tell you that I was the perfect guy for the job, but looking back for it, I have no idea what he saw in me because I worked hard and I tried hard and we had success. But at 25, I just didn't know as much as I do now. I don't think anyone in the, in the world does. So... I was very thankful to kind of have that chance to to try again with Dale Jr. And unfortunately for Jeff, I took some of his advice and carried it over with Dale Jr. And without a doubt, those were my better years. But Jeff and I are great friends. Uh, We talk almost all the time to this day. It's just different because he truly is a mentor. I can never consider him just a buddy when I was his crew chief because he was the guy. He was the guy that gave me a shot in this sport where when I joined up with Dale Jr., it was two guys that were thankful for a new fresh start because we both were struggling in the current positions. And it was a... Quite a roller coaster ride for four years. Yeah, Nate, there's a lot of detail in there about how important it was for Junior and Steve to get on the same page immediately and set the tone for what they both needed to accomplish for their careers. There were there's a fascinating chapter in there about uh, a concussion that Junior went through in 2012 at a crash at Kansas and how they had to navigate that and manage that. That was interesting. But at the very end of the book, I really came away, Nate, thinking that it was a love letter to the entire team that Steve had yeah. built around him. I mean, it was it was very much like very meaty between him and Junior and interesting uh, relationships dynamics between him and Jeff Gordon. But it was about the group and about his family. And I'm just wondering how you were able to prioritize that in writing the book and making sure that every part of it was written right. the way that Steve wanted it written. It's a great question, Carol. We went back and forth, I think, a lot, Steve, on how we were going to organize it. And eventually it just made sense, I think, to lay it out chronologically. One, because in chapter one, I still remember the text I got from Steve Awesome chapter one. Like, it it was, I agonized over it for like a month, and it starts at the very beginning of Steve getting hired as Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s crew chief. And I think that sets up this entire four-year odyssey. And as you mentioned, Carolyn, the way it ends, you hear so much in NASCAR about how it's about family and it's about relationships. There are some very key relationships in this book, like Dale Jr., like Jeff Gordon, and how they related to Steve. But I think the big takeaway at the end is the fact that the number 88 team really was a family. And you, you, I think you especially see that in the, in the, the final season that they, they spent together when they won four times. Yeah. Hey, Nate, I, my question, i got two questions for you. First, 
and knowing Steve, uh, great colleague, and how detailed he is in explaining things, that you've already got enough material for the sequel to this. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I think we he's paying yes. you well. Yeah, he's paying yeah, you well, Nate, right? Are you getting paid for yeah. this, Nate? We certainly hope so. And listen, the, the sequel the sequel starts this weekend when Dale that's Jr. Right. That's right. sits up next to me in the book. I couldn't think of a better week to talk about this book because as exciting as those four years were, and even more to relive them over the last couple years, it just excites me to think of what is ahead. Dale and I have such a unique relationship um, that I cannot wait to stand next to him into the booth and perhaps disagree with him about everything he thinks about what that's happening on the racetrack. It should be a blast to listen to. I'd like to say we planned it out because it looks like we yeah. did, but we started this three years ago before we even knew Dale Jr. was yeah. coming yeah. to NBC. That, but you know, funny how it all falls it's together? It's incredible how it all fell together. And by the way, compensation, just being a published author for the first time, i got to thank this guy for that. Yeah. That is a big deal for me. Nate, you're it's fantastic. I'm telling you, this book is really, really good. I'm not just hawking it. I, I really I think it's a great read for a NASCAR fan or somebody that's just interested in the relationships that go with sports is fascinating. Um, all right, coming up, we are going to tell you who came out on top in the NBC Broadcasters Fantasy League. This is very important. Wasn't me. Uh, wasn't me either. Uh, but I feel good about it. Plus, we've got um, very big news for everybody that likes to play NASCAR Fantasy Live. So stick with us. We've got fantasy news straight ahead. NASCAR America is brought to you by Mobile One Annual Protection. Proven protection for 20,000 miles. Well, sadly, Sonoma marked the end of our 10-week league on NASCAR Fantasy Live. Here's a look at the final standings. Very smart players in our league, which had 4,000 entries. Ultimately, D-Racer 555 taking home the trophy. Very big thanks to everybody that competed with us. Um, as for the NASCAR and NBC broadcasters, Rick Allen talked trash right out of the gate and ended up coming out on top. He passed Dustin Long with his Sonoma picks. Marty Snyder, big surge late, bragging rights belonging to Rick. If you know Rick, you know that he will take full advantage of <laughs> oh those bragging gosh. rights. Um, we are going to start a whole new 10-week league for the rest of the regular season. So we'll bring you that news later on in the week. I feel like I've had a great like initial kind of swim now. into this, and yeah. now I'm ready to beat okay. Rick Allen's But I'm just wondering, Steve, like how long are you going to have to listen to Rick Allen brag about this? <laughs> so there's only one reason I'm not looking forward to our first race at Chicago, and that is it, because I'm going to have to listen to Rick for three straight days. But, hey, congratulations. The, the game is a blast. I encourage everyone to sign up. We have 10 more Fun-filled weeks coming up. It was so yeah. exciting. I cracked into the top 800, which Look for me you. is that? that is very, very impressive. And I'm going to be insufferable because I came out <laughs> on top of Parker Kligerman, and that is all I care about. That's all for NASCAR America. For all your NASCAR news, log on to NBCSports.com slash NASCAR. We'll be back Tuesday with Scan All, 5 p.m. Eastern, same time, same place. We'll see you then. Thanks for watching.